Hey everyone and welcome to the 12th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. Today we're going to have Germinal Van on to talk a little bit about his new book, Classical Liberalism in Africa. Germinal is from West Africa and is a proponent of free market principles, individual rights, and private ownership. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And here's Germinal. Hey Germinal, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. So, I read that you're... You are a philosopher, you're a scholar, you work with um, Mises, but before we get into it, do you want to just introduce yourself, give a little bit about your background, where you're from, how you got to the U.S., and what you're doing now? Yes, yes, sure. Well, uh, Liam, thank you for having me on your podcast. To be honest, it's a, uh, it's an honor. It's not every day that I do have the chance to be interviewed by someone who's interested in my work, so I feel valued about it. Yeah, so my name is Jerbnel Gerard Van. Um, I was born and raised in Côte d'Ivoire, so Ivory Coast, in 1990 in Abidjan. Uh, I speak French is my first language, that's why I kind of have like a thick accent. I think it will always be there. Uh, I pursued my elementary and secondary education in Abidjan. And then once I graduated with my baccalaureate, which is the high school degree, I came straight to the United States with a student visa. And I studied at the Catholic University of America. Um, For my undergrad, I majored in political science. But in high school, I majored in physics, math, and biology. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, and at the time, I wasn't, um, I was decent in physics and math, but I, I had a lot of trouble in biology. Math was okay, but it wasn't my forte, so I so I failed in two thousand nine. And the French system, when you fail, you don't just repeat like the math class or the physical. No, you know you repeat the entire year. Oh wow! So I had to repeat my senior year. Yeah, so I had to repeat my senior year, and then I switched to classical studies, which is uh, literature, French literature, history, and philosophy. And then I graduated with honors. Then I came to the United States. Then I studied politics. So at the time, I used to not like math, math very much. But suddenly, my taste for mathematics and science, science came back. I guess it's by following the Nobel Prize and everything. It stimulates mm-hmm. me to embrace more analytical uh, 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 field of studies like hard sciences. And then, and then so I graduate. Yeah, I, I'll finish real quick. So I graduated in 2014. And then I pursued my master's degree in political management at the George Washington University. And I graduated in 2017. And then in 2018, I became a writer, mm. pretty much. Well, they do say that uh, mathematics is the best form of philosophy or the philosopher, you know, it's the best exercise for the philosopher. Absolutely. So, so yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so you've been getting more into economics and I've seen, I see that you have a bunch of articles on um liberalization and poverty and stuff like that. Uh, Just to get into it, do you want to talk a little bit about how um, you have this article called Even Partial Liberalization Can Save a Nation from Poverty? Do you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. In fact, the original title was Property Rights and Economic Growth. Right. And But the editor, Brian McMacken, which I really like, he gives me like great feedbacks. He's a great economist. Uh, he changed the title. 
um, because I guess like when you write property writer and economic growth, it's more like a scientific scholarly article of like, you know, a couple dozen of pages. Mm -hmm. So he switched it. But basically the point of the title, the point of the article, sorry, was to say that even if you don't completely liberalize your society, whether like even a small portion, let, let me say like a third that you liberalize will become more advanced than mm -hmm. the other parts that you did not liberalize. It's, it's common sense. People don't understand liberalism. The, 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 the point of liberalism is the etymology of liberalism is basically to question authority. That's what liberalism is. Because in Europe, before uh, liberalism became the dominant ideal, it was the monarch and the, and, and the church that was dominating European societies. So whatever the church decides, we do not question. It's in the name of God. So why are you going to question God? We are the people who simply um, convey the message of God. And the monarch was the representation of God on earth. So how are you going to question the monarch? And then you have people like, like Locke. You have people like Descartes. First of all, Descartes, Descartes started before Locke. Descartes came and said, Cogito ergo sum. I think therefore I am. He said that if I'm able to generate thought, it means that I'm a being on my own. So if I can generate thought, I can think for myself what is good for myself. So why do I have to listen to someone who doesn't understand my problems? And then Locke now went deeper by writing treaties of government or second treaties of government, where he explained the relationship between human nature and civil society. So that's why Locke is the father of, of um, classical liberalism. But to me, the, the real father of liberalism, whether social or classical liberalism, is Descartes. Descartes was the first to um, question the notion of political authority. So um, the thing with liberalism is that for Africans, we don't see liberalism as a good thing because it was, of course, you know, the tool or the ideology of the European colonizer. Okay. They brought it, brought it in Africa to induce us into peaceful colonization, if I would say, and to peaceful slavery too. So that's why people are reluctant to it. But what they don't understand is that it's not, liberalism is not just a Western byproduct. Yes, it was created by white people, sure. Why people create a thing, but it's, it's not just designed for them. It is designed for human beings because any society that uses it is making progress. Right. It's clear. I can give you a perfect example. Rwanda. Rwanda politically is not free. Paul Kagame, at the end of the day, remains an authoritarian leader. But economically, Liam, I, 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 let me tell you that you can go buy property in Rwanda. You're safe. I guarantee you that the data is there. You know, data is not lying. Rwanda is the most, is the, oh, let me put it out, is the freest, freest society in Africa. And the funny thing is that in 1994, Rwanda had a genocide, the deadliest genocide ever. People were killing themselves with Machedi, the Hutu versus the Tutsis. And from 1997 until today, Rwanda completely surge economically. Kagame was a listen, we can do those democracy stuff. It's going to create more social contentions. I'm the leader. So Kagame's 
I'm here to impose law and order in order to maintain social peace. And that's what is going on. Mm -hmm. And economic wonders are thriving. It's the most advanced uh, nation economically in, in Africa. It, it's amazing. But because they applied freedom economically, even if they apply freedom politically, Rwanda would have still been advanced. So what I'm saying is that people don't need to, to apply classical liberalism in its, in its entirety. You don't need that. Mm -hmm. All you need is to apply just a, a, some elements of it, and it will take you to a bigger step. Look at Japan. Japanese are not European, yet they're probably the most advanced nation in Asia because Japanese have applied the rule of law. They have applied capitalism, private property, and Japan, Japanese have individual rights. There's nothing European about it. It's human nature. Right. You apply those things, you will be better off. Simple as that. Right, and you have you have another video, and you talked a little bit about rule of law, like you just said, and the idea, a lot of African countries, as you said, the, the governments are kind of paternalistic. Um, so is the idea that you're kind of trying to get across that um, if they don't necessarily have to abandon that paternalistic uh, government, but they can introduce like liberalism within society in other places. Yes, absolutely. The the thing is, the thing to understand is that, as I said, um, African leaders are like the European monarchs in the fifteenth and sixteenth century. They're afraid that if their people are a little bit too educated, too rational, if they're aware of their rights, it could be a threat to them. Mm -hmm. So we got to keep them low. Like we have, basically they have to keep their intellect low. Right. Because the person who is not educated doesn't understand. Like, you know, in the United States, everyone understands their constitutional rights. It's, it's, you guys learn that in school. You know the ten uh, the ten amendments and the other seventeen amendments on top of that, but in Africa, African countries have constitutions like here, written constitution. People don't know their rights right. because the government doesn't include that in the national curriculum. They don't teach those. They don't teach the people the rights. There's a purpose behind that because if you know too much, you become dangerous. You become a rebel. So they don't want the people to rebel against their authority. So only those who have access to education be eventually become corrupt because they get into the government. And, you know. In your hometown, were you, was your education more liberal? Did you get uh, this idea of rights through that education? Uh, yeah, I mean, Cote d'Ivoire is a pretty liberal country. Abidjan is a very liberal city. Uh, my education was quite liberal. I, I used to challenge my professors, in fact. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I used to challenge my professors, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, my education was quite liberal, but at the time, I wasn't that intellectually inclined. I mean, I showed, when I was in high school, I, I already showed some intellectual abilities, like when it comes especially to history and philosophy, like I... I was really good at that. Like I always loved deepening thoughts. Like, you know, my thoughts, like I love to, to dig, to be mm -hmm. more analytical. To me, the more analytical I become, the it, it, it literally excites me. Right. That's why I don't I, I don't read novels. It bores it, it literally <laughs> bores me. 
it, it does. I mean, I'm not. I don't know if you read novels. I'm not saying that to insult you or anything. Like, it's not that. Don't get me wrong. I respect people who write novels. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to discredit anybody. It's just that it's not my. It's not my cup of tea. Right. <laughs> yeah. I. So all the books you see behind me here, they're all analytical books. Uh, that's good. So, um, did yeah. you did you There's get no single thing fiction here? Right. Did you get into that through Hayek? When did when did you yeah, get introduced to Hayek? Hayek? So I took a class in college called um, Conservatism in the United States. And one of the class assignments was to read The Road to Serfdom. That's when I came to contact for the first time with Hayek's, like, you know, who was Friedrich Hayek and all this. Um, and then I was fascinated by the book. And, but at the time I was just a Republican. So I wasn't uh, really inclined into economics. What made me inclined into economics is when I became a, li- a, a, a libertarian because when Trump became president, the, the Republican party completely changed. Yeah. Not, it's not, the, it's not Trump that bothers me. It's just how it's the cult of personality yeah. that you know, took over the party and I'm a liberal. Not American, modern liberalism. No, I'm a liberal fundamentally. Like, I'm me. I question everything. That's the role of the liberal. My choices are my choices. I do not have to to subject myself to the authority of somebody else. Trump is not my favorite. He doesn't pay my bills. Why do I have to agree with everything he does or I'm not good enough to be a Republican? Right. So I, 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 I felt that my... my um, I felt that the Republican Party was losing sight. So I ideologically shift. And one of the reasons why I for, uh, philosophically why I shift from the Republican Party or from conservatism to, to libertarianism is because um, Republicans use the state to enforce morality and it is profoundly wrong. Who are you to enforce morality? You're a sinner like me. If you never think as a first um, if you're a sinner like me, who are you to enforce morality and to decide what is moral and what is not? Because they, they come and look at, I mean, it's, it's not to necessarily talk about abortion per se, but when you have states like Alabama criminalizing a woman's right to decide what she want to do, I mean, in identity, for instance, like abortion is a thing between two consenting adults. If they don't feel ready for some reason, I mean, who are we to judge? We may not like what they're doing, but it's their lives. Why the state is coming and enforcing uh, a law upon if you have an abortion, we're going to imprison you or, you know, it's it's wrong. Like if you claim to be a liberal, if you you claim to promote the the rights of the individuals, well, if we want to have an abortion, that's a problem. That's a problem, like... I'm not saying that abortion is good, but at the end of the day, who am I to impose my moral values on her? Mm. Are you... That's the thing. And you mentioned that we were all yeah. sinners. Are you, do you come from a Christian background too? Or a religious background? Yeah, I, yeah. Okay, no, no, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I do come from a religious background, but I am not religious at all. Okay. I don't believe in religion. In fact, I despise religion. I despise... Or, yeah, I just, because it's an organized thing created by man. Mm. I'm spiritual. I believe in energy. I believe in the laws of nature. Okay. I believe there's a immaterial world that we do not have physically access to, but it's there. Mm. 
karma is a very good example of the immaterial world, but which exists. Because if you plant the seed of evil, you're going to sow evil eventually. That's why we say don't hurt people who do not hurt you. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious at all. Because religion was a tool used by men to conquer. Like, look at the church, the Catholic church, when they gave South America to Spain and Portugal. Like, if it was a cake. Uh, you guys can do whatever you want. Like, if you promote peace and the love of God, how can you give such a huge continent to other men to inflate, to impose slavery on others? Mm. You see, that's, and it's the same with Islam too. They are a very emotional, very radical. They act before they think. It's, it doesn't make sense. Like, why you wear a hijab? Like, have you seen Allah? Do you know who he is? Like, to say that if you don't wear a hijab, you're going to go to heaven? No one proved... No one, no one provided me with empirical evidence to demonstrate that there is heaven or earth. Mm. No one came to the dead and said, hey, guys, I went heaven. It's so cool. Right. <laughs> if you, if I see someone who does that, sure, I'd be. <laughs> but so far, no. Interesting. So I, um, I actually do study. I am, I am a religious person. And I find, yeah. I find it interesting within the Bible itself, even if you don't believe in like metaphysical and anything like that no no i actually do believe in the metaphysical world okay. i just don't believe that what my issue with religion is that it is based on a book mm. that is that is written by man mm. so they put a manufacturing too that, that that that's my point oh yeah i strongly believe in metaphysics there is a world that we don't see oh absolutely it's just that it is it's just that it is religion is just based on a book and you have to follow that blindly without questioning that's why, like, a pure liberal cannot be religious, mm. if you see what I... Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I do want to point out, though, and there is one lesson that I really like uh, from the Bible mm. that you kind of mentioned, the idea of us all being sinners. Um, it's it's very interesting. There's this one part where it says, uh, I, I'm going to mess it up, but those who have not sinned can cast the first stone. And, the and no one I, there. <laughs> right. And the whole idea, though, is like, if we're all sinning, what, like, who am I to like impose my will, or if you know, there, and there's another part where it says, if you, um, if you just look at another woman, uh, you commit adultery. If you speak unkindly to someone, you commit murder. And it, it's funny because we all do that every day, yet we still think that we are in a position to control others. And I, I just don't see that there's any system that actually allows that. Right? Yeah, like it's, and exactly, and I, I totally see what you're saying. It, it's the Ten Commandments are, to, to me, I, I wrote a book a couple months ago called The Problem of Egalitarianism, in which I started with morality, how egalitarians use morality as a tool to promote their, their political agenda. Because they make it sound like morality, uh, they make it sound that equality equals better off. And if you're against equality, you're not, you don't have moral values. This is nonsense. Right. So I explained that, I started by saying that the reason why we have the Ten Commandments is to all human beings. Basically, we all, the Ten Commandments is the universal fundamental laws 
of the material world. Mm. And it's based on that now, people create the legal system. Mm. That's why, for instance, crimes are, always have harsher punishments than stealing. You know, mm. like if you kill someone, the, the punishment will be definitely harsher than if you stole. So, um, so basically, uh, and those laws are, st are stated in the first, in the, in the 10 commandments, you do not steal, you do not, you do not kill, you do not commit adultery and stuff like that. Mm. They're all in the 10 commandments. Like if even, even, um, it's universal. Even if you look at Islam, they have the same thing. And they're even radical about their punishment compared to Christians. <laughs> so, you know, it's, so it's the, so, so that's why I explained in the book, like to start and egalitarians use that to make you feel guilty if you do not support equality. Mm. But who are you to decide who, how equality should be? What makes the world beautiful is that we're not equal. Me, for instance, and Shaquille O'Neal have a different assessment of skills in basketball. Does it mean that in basketball, he's surely superior to me? But if we talk about economic theory, I believe that I crush him. I mean, it's not to be arrogant, but I believe that I have a better assessment of intellectual skills when it comes to economic theory than Shaquille O'Neal. People think that equality, when people are equal, therefore, they're better off. No. And they, 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 make, they, they think that when we say inequality, therefore, one has to be superior than the other. No, people are just different. Mm. Different does not mean I'm better than you or, you know, it doesn't mean that. It's just that we're different. I may be good in one thing, uh, and we, human beings cannot be good in every single thing. One individual cannot be good in every single thing. I know economics. I don't know medicine. I don't know chemistry. I love physics. I can't do physics. I don't have the skills to do physics. At most, I can do math, but that's it. That's it. You know, like, I, <laughs> I don't know. Like, and, and, and people, they, 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 they want always, like, they want that, they make equality that goal because it's impossible to achieve. It's impossible to achieve. If you impose equality, you will negate competition completely. No one will have incentives. Mm. And I will equal. What, do, what, what incentive do I have to, to seek higher aims? Mm. But if you're in a better position than me, I would like to be like you. Yeah, I'm like, ah, oh, Liam inspires me. I'd like to be like him. Liam, tell me, so how did you do to be where you are today? Right. That, that that's all. Yeah, it's people. People are just being dramatic about <laughs> social issues. Yeah. So I'm pretty interested in the in what you, um, when you first moved to the the United States, was, was there a profound like especially while you were reading Hayek alongside of it, was there like this profound realization, of like. Property rights and liberalization. Like, what can you kind of. Uh, conceptualize your idea of property and how you came to know economics um, and all that stuff? Yeah, so property to me, first of all, start with the quote of John Locke when he said, the earth belongs to the one who works it. So if you put physical or intellectual effort into something, that thing belongs to you. Even by nature, it belongs to you. That's number one. Number two, your body, you are the owner of your body. 
even if you're even if you're an introvert, you decide of your action. So to me, property is like the first driver, or would I say the second driver after human capital? It's the second driver of economic growth. I think in order to create something, you need to own it first and then exchange it in the marketplace with others. So that's what property is. It's amazingly important because if you do not have property, you cannot create growth, you cannot create incentives because it's by property you are able to develop capital. You cannot have capital if you do not own. For instance, this computer I'm using to talking to you is my capital. That's the only thing I have. That's what I use to talk to you. That's what I use to write my papers. If I don't have that MacBook, I'm done. That's my capital, right? So if now I want to get a better capital than this, since I own this, I can bring on the marketplace and sell it for a better computer, right? Mm-hmm. That that's that, that that's the thing with, with, with that's the thing with property. So when I read Hayek, it it deeply shaped my intellectual beliefs in the market. That's when I became like a free market guy. It deeply shaped my intellectual beliefs in the market because he explained in simple terms that when you get when you give legitimacy to a um, to an external force of command to decide on how you should act, you are basically enslaving yourself to that force of command. Mm. Basically, you're no longer your own. You, you do not own yourself anymore. Because if you do something contrary to what the force of command is ordering you to do, you're going to face the consequences of it. And that's why, that's from, this is how I understood property in the road to serfdom, although it did not really talk about property in the road to serfdom. It was more political. And then when I became a libertarian, that's when my incline to economics developed because libertarianism is very into political philosophy and economics compared to Republican. Republicans are more like social, conservative, like if they're more about like the culture, preserve the culture and blah, blah, blah. But libertarians are more about economics, like because Libertarians understand economics philosophically. That's why sometimes, and that's one of that's that's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because they fail to realize that the market is not perfect. The market has its limits, and there's some instances where government is necessary. Mm. Believe me, I used to this I used to see the market dogmatically. The market can stop everything, or the market cannot. <laughs> that's my issue with libertarians. But at least. Libertarianism developed my understanding of economics. Mm. And yeah, and that's when you read like Ludwig von Mises, Hayek, Bart, these people, it's very embedded into economics. So it's from there I get into economics. And now I left the subject to focus more on the technique. Mm. I'm no longer, most of my books before they were promoting the free market a lot. I still do promote a free market, but it's not in the first, it's not like in the first hand anymore. Mm. Now, like I focus more on the technique of economics, like using mathematical models to demonstrate a point. It's more about the technique that I'm attracted to now. So, uh, so, and when, and once you start focusing on the technique, you start to realize you become more objective and you start to realize that, okay, the market has some flaws. Mm. And you start 
to understand that, okay, Keynesian economics is flooded, but it has a point. Okay. It has a point. It uh, is flooded. Don't get me wrong, but it has a point. And, now, and if you want, I can, I can later on explain why yeah. it has a point and how yeah. it is flooded. Too. Yeah, that sounds good. But, uh, yeah, but to, 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 to finish my point real quick. Um, yeah, so, because now I'm committed to advance a branch of knowledge. That's what I want. I want to break grounds. I want to, to, to provide path-breaking work, like write like scientific articles. That's what I'm more focused on now. Like with Mrs., I still do the free. I mean, I'm I'm a free market guy. Like, I'm completely free market, but I am not an Austrian. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so I'm not an Austrian. What do you call yourself then? Are you just a free market guy? I, no, I'm a neoclassical. I am more inclined to the Chicago school than the Austrian because I have I have an issue with praxeology. Mm. Praxeology is a very it's a very good method, but it is not sufficient to determine economic theory because you can't just rely on logic. Logic may be objective, but it is objective by subjection. Let me develop what I mean here. Objective by subjection means that you determine your logic based on your experience. But if you and I do not have the same experience, we cannot deduce the same thing. You see what I mean? Yeah. Do you Yeah, like yeah, do you wanna ahead. do you wanna break down what praxeology is for people who might not understand it? Yeah, so praxeology in fact is a science. It's not an ideology, it's a science to explain economic theory based on human action. So the fundamental of praxeology is the, the purposeful actions that we perform on a daily basis. That's when you have the, uh, the theory of preference, rational expectations, and all of this. It's like based on our action, based on the decisions we make. If I decide, for instance, to read that book, Black Swan, instead of reading, uh, I don't know, uh, philosophical explanations from Nozick, it's because I made the conscious decisions to read Taleb, uh, Nassim Taleb, because there is something about Taleb that I want to learn that I may not necessarily see in Nozick. Mm. So that's it. So praxeology kind of go in that sense. Like it's all about the rational of the individual. Basically, Mrs. say that individuals are rational all the time, which is not true. Individuals are not always rational. People make stupid things. Like you go on Instagram, you see those memes. People are doing some, excuse me for my language, but doing some dumb <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sorry for the language, but it's true. The, the people are not always rational. People, you're gonna give that. That's why people say, if you give a million dollars to a poor person, you will blow those million dollars in a, in two days. Mm. He's going to spend to spend that million dollar in things that he doesn't need. Although he's a human being, he's a rational being by nature because he has a brain, but he doesn't act rationally. So that's where praxeology is can be flooded. Mm. Do you do you want to explain how the uh, Chicago um, school and maybe Keynesianism can kind of fix that? Yeah, sure. So the, the difference between Chicago and, and, uh, and the Austrian is that, so first of all, they both believe in the free market. Milton Friedman was a strong member of the Chicago school. But a difference, 
and the Chicago School relies on empirical evidence to demonstrate the economic theory. The Austrians do not. The Austrians reject math and empirical evidence. They solely rely on the rational of, of the rational of the individual to make logical deductions. Mm. That's what I'm saying. It, it, it is not enough because human beings do not always act rationally. Okay. But the Chicago, they're usually more correct than they 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 rely they base the first thing they do to determine the economic theory is that they they rely on uh, the data collection on resources resources could be recorded if for instance i read this and then i read another the other three books of taleb the likelihood is that okay i may have to i'm, I'm gonna buy more of taleb because i like his readings and then when you look at how much this cost is, is spent, I spent like $30 for the whole package. I'm willing to spend another $30 too for, to retail it. So, so that's the point. Like you, you, you can see based on my purchase, you can see if I have the incentive to do it or not, mm. you know, like that's, that's how the Chicago school is. So highly, uh, rely on mathematical models to determine economic theory. So, um, compared to, to the Austrians. So they see economics as a hard science mm. compared to, to the Austrians who see it as a social science. Economics is actually both, in my opinion, that's just my personal opinion. Economics is a social science fundamentally because it started as a social science with Adam Smith, you know, the wealth of nations. He explained the free market from a philosophical standpoint. And then but the math is important because when it comes to Pareto efficiency, optimization, you need the mathematical models to, to understand. If, for instance, you want to demonstrate why the minimum wage is hurting, is hurting unskilled workers, you need a diagram to empirically show to the reader that, hey, you know, here is the equilibrium, here's the price, here's the wage, mm. the nominal wage at the equilibrium. Once the government says that, no, we're going to raise the minimum wage, it reduces the quantity of workers that can actually get in the market and get hired. Simple mm. as that. That's interesting. You know, like, I, yeah, a like lot you, of the Austrians that I listen to, um, they, they still use terminology like, you know, uh, minimum wage will reduce supply, but you can only really get that through the mathematical models. That's... That is yeah, interesting. the mathematical models actually enables you to to see because the the the, the etymology of empirical evidence is observation. It's mm. what you can observe. The Austrians say, "Yeah, you just conjecture. It's just a conjecture. You you did. But what are your evidence to actually demonstrate that it will reduce labor supply?" Mm. That, that's what it's about that's where the mathematical models comes into play even when you want even when you want to determine wages that's mm. when the mathematical models comes into play so mathematics is important but it also has its limits a lot of like Keynesians use a lot of mathematics and the reason why is because most most of the people who use math in economics are those who are more left-wing, more like planners. Right. Because to plan, <laughs> yeah, you need the map. If you don't believe in planning, why are you going to need the map for? And that's... Let people do their... 
that's what I was going to say is it, I think part of the reason that Austrians like to say that because uh, um, I, I believe it was actually Hayek who said that they don't like to make economics into a science. Um, and I think part of the reason that they don't like thinking of it in that terms is because people often uh, like Keynesians will use mathematics positively in a way that they like actually use action whereas Austrians think that they should only be able to use it negatively where they're like observing rather than actually doing something to like produce you know like so and, and I'm kind of more inclined to to view it that way but you, the mathematical models are pretty important I know they are very important yeah. and the the flaw of it though it's oh you have to see everything as a trade-off everything has its flaws and qualities the qualities as i said like you need mathematical models to determine optimization and blah 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 so you know you can observe and test things right but the flaw of it is that many many economists now use it too much so it's overshadowing the field of economics per se how they need to determine or to predict Mm. And that's what the problem is. You cannot use mathematics also to predict human behavior. Human behavior is not a mathematical thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not a mathematical thing. You use, you use mathematics only to determine phenomena, mm. to determine event, not behavior. Behavior is not a mathematical thing. You calculate. Mm. You know, you, you, you yeah, you don't calculate behavior. You just like when I give you the example of the minimum minimum wage. That's not behavior that's a phenomenon like if you increase the minimum wage mathematically it's going to reduce the quantity of labor supply it's crystal clear you know there is no uh if, if you if you for instance increase um if you increase interest rates it will drive people to borrow less and to save more mm -hmm. you can mathematically demonstrate that right you know like it, this is a phenomena. This of this uh, phenomena of of economics, but behavior per se, that's uh you can calculate behavior, and that's what the Soviets tried to do. Mm. It's because you cannot calculate behavior that you have prices. You try to control behavior by prices, and the Soviet they completely they trying to do that market socialism. It was developed by Oscar Lang. He was a Polish economist. Uh, he so he developed that um, market uh, that market socialism when he says that things should be nas nationalized and the government should establish like a price system of trial and error. Interesting, right? So basically, yeah. So basically, government will determine price, like if supply, if um, supply is too, if uh, so basically surplus or supply is too much, they're going to reduce prices. So that people to stimulate demand. So they're gonna instead of letting the market naturally drive uh, drive, you know, the forces of supply and demand, they want to control it. Mm. And it didn't yeah, Oscar Long, you should definitely read about it. Like, yeah, look into it. it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I vehemently disagree with the guy, but his idea of market socialism is interesting when it from the point of scientific reasoning. Okay. From a scientific um, contribution to economics, it is interesting to to read about it. Okay. But philosophically, it doesn't make sense. Like, 
it is it's not the government that decides when to increase price when to decrease price right. price control price control always lead to uh to a shortage because government when government control prices and produce services or good or goods for people it uses the cheapest resources mm. i always say the cheapest resources like always i always say like look at it like if you were using a chinese product chinese product are counterfeit you buy you purchase it you use it after three months the thing gets rotten and it doesn't work <laughs> that's exactly how right. i mean i'm not saying that to, to to be a jerk but that's that's how that's how it is because mm. and that's how government or they operate it always worked fine at first and then yeah do you want to do you want to explain the price system for a lot of people i i mean it, it took me a while i think to see mm -hmm. you know it's not really evident that prices are necessary like when you first are looking at prices people don't see like what how is it that you know $14 has all these thing pri things priced into it you know that's right. not really clear exactly no exactly so prices are signals you've heard that many times I read a book called monetary Calidics. it's by one of my good friend uh, Michael Hoffman I recommend that book he explained price system by making an analogy with traffic lights Prices enables you to coordinate things. Imagine if you're driving and all the traffic lights turn green at the same time. <laughs> Just imagine. All of them turn green and you are, and you are at the intersection. Right. All of them go green. Done. Accident, right? Yeah. See, all, if all prices are low at the same time, what are we going to have? Shortage. Prices enables to maintain in fact the equilibrium between supply and demand mm -hmm. when you look at that equilibrium you see mm -hmm. exactly so prices enables you to maintain the equilibrium why because at the end of the day firms want to maximize profit and individuals want to maximize utility so that's what it is so if prices are too low demand will increase significantly and you won't be able to supply to everybody. You won't make profit at all. So you have to, so once people start buying the thing too much, you raise the price a little bit. That's why inflation is necessary. That's why we said we, every central bank target that 2% inflation raise. You, you increase the price a little bit. If something costs 10 bucks, the next day, okay, okay it cut 10 bucks and then you have hundred people who bought it the same day. You're like, oh, okay, well, I don't know if I can supply a hundred um, goods every time, you know, and I don't make any money of it. So, okay, I'm going to raise it to 12 bucks. So you raise it to 12 bucks, suddenly you have 90 people who buy it. Mm. Decrease. And then you're like, All right, I'm going to put it to 15. And then you have 75 people who buy it. Right. <laughs> so you see, like, it, it's to maintain that equilibrium so you can, so you can make profit because, but it also, if people are buying more computers than books, it means that people who produces the com computers will have to produce more. So what is going to happen? They're going to have to raise the price. So those who produce books now, let's say paperback books, they're going to have now to decrease the price of theirs and to bring that demand back to them. So it's, uh, that's what price are for. It's very simple to understand price. So when the government control prices, 
it's an artificial control. It's not natural. It's something. It's that's what it, it's a it's a um, it's an external force of command that you try to impose on a, na a natural order of things. That's what Hayek talk about the use of knowledge in society. Great article. Please <laughs> read it. And also, you should read um, Law, Legislation, and Liberty, where he talk about the spontaneous order. Great, great, great book. It's really deep. I have to tell you, Hayek is someone who thinks deeply. deeply. At first, you might not understand what he's talking about, and he might even frustrate you, but you need to be very concentrated to understand what he's saying, because if you're not someone who thinks analytically, you might have trouble, too. But, it's about, but it's a great book, and he talks about the natural order, the spontaneous order, which is the natural order of things, how things happen naturally through the market, market where people don't have to force things. But when, uh, so basically, the invisible hand. Mm -hmm. That's what the spontaneous order is, is the invisible hand. But when the government, government interferes, when that external agent comes in, you try to plan, plan things. When you try to plan something that is not natural, it will never lead to a good outcome, whether it's on the short term or, or on the long term. It will mm -hmm. never lead to a good outcome because it's not natural, it's artificial, artificial. Let me give you an example. It's like, let's say a woman goes and do Botox on her lips. She injects. It's no longer natural, right? So eventually that lip is going to pop up. It's going to the second effects are going to 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 to, to, to appear mm -hmm. because it's not natural. It's the same thing. So she has to always add more stuff on it to maintain it the way it is because she 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 brought something external to her natural state. Mm. Her natural state is her body, her lips the way it is. Then she brought an external agent to add something to her natural state. So therefore it completely changes the scope of her natural state completely. Mm. And it's the same way with Keynesian economics too. That's why Keynesian economics is flooded because what is important to understand about Keynesian economics is that it, it was a, an economic system designed for recessions only. Because it's true that the market doesn't fix itself immediately. It takes time. And people don't have time. They have to buy the mortgage, the rent, all the bills. <laughs> you know, it's tough. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that once the government has come to fix whatever it has to fix, it has to withdraw from the economy. But the problem is that it doesn't. It stays yeah. and become a permanent actor of the economy. And that's why Keynesian economics goes bad. I always tell people, if you want to understand Keynesian economics, assimilate or do a simulation with the human body. The human body is the economy. Your body is the economy. You get sick. The sickness is the recession. You know, once in a while you need to get sick. That's life. Have you, uh, since you were born, if you never got sick, you have a problem. Right. <laughs> you need to get sick. And the reason why you get sick is because it revitalizes your cells. It revitalizes your immune system. That's why you get sick. It's not because it's good to get sick, but it's a way to to strengthen your immune system once you take medication. It's the same with sessions. Market fails in order for other markets to get created, to, to be created. Mm -hmm. That's that, that that's the point. Because nothing stays linear forever. It goes like this. Right. That's what markets are. It goes, it goes, it goes, it goes, it goes, and then eventually it has to fail. That that's the way it is. So when you look at Keynesian economics, Keynesian economics is like, is that medicine you take when you're sick? But medicine always has second effects. It will heal you, 
it will make you recover, but it has second effects. And those second effects will surge if you keep taking the medicine after you have recovered. Mm. You see? Yeah. It's like you're taking medicine while you're not sick. Well, <laughs> you're going to get yourself sick. Right. And that's the thing with Keynesian economics is that like people, now government, it became a permanent actor of the economy. So even when the economy is doing fine, the government is, is injecting money that it doesn't need to inject. It's making economic decisions that it doesn't need to make. As a result, it's plenty of seeds for the, for the next downturn mm. so do you do you believe that some sort of injection into the market by the um central planner is okay then like a two percent like you said so inflation well inflation yes has to be maintained always at a two percent target because prices have to fund prices have to raise a little bit that's that's the way to maintain the equilibrium mm -hmm. but that doesn't need central planners for that mm. prices increase as demand you know, demand increase, you have increased prices so that right. you cannot supply to everybody's thin profit. So no, like I personally believe that in the case of the coronavirus, it is not a failure of the market. It is not a failure of the business cycle. It's a pandemic. It's a sanitary crisis, a health crisis. So in this case, the stimulus to an extent is necessary if it was a failure of the market market dude just let those banks die the one who are about to die let all mm -hmm. or let those business die but here it's a pandemic it's not that the market failed so all of the sudden you have like 6.6 .6 million claiming unemployment so you know like it's it's this stimulus package is necessary to put everything back in shape. But if it was a failure of the market because of the business cycle, for instance, like the one of 2008, I personally don't believe that a stimulus package would be necessary. Right. Okay. Yeah. It won't um, be necessary, but it's a pandemic. So it's, it's different. Okay. Sounds good. Because the market will be able to fix it like that. So I know we're kind of doing this backwards. Um, this conversation has been pretty interesting, but if if you want to uh, actually talk about your newest book, um, you're you're an author sure. of twelve books, right? Is that correct? Yeah, twelve. Yeah. And that was, I mean, I was looking in two thousand nineteen. I I saw a post. You only had three at the time, or four. So you've written a lot just within the last year. Yeah, I, in fact. Writing to me is, is the way to distract myself. That's the way I have fun. Mm -hmm. If I don't write, it, it bothers me. Literally, like, I, I can't even get sick. <laughs> <laughs> I need to write. I need my mind to keep, you know, I need the will to keep going. Right. I always have projects in my mind. Yeah, like last year, yeah, I wrote a ton of books. Uh, I, because to me, like, it's the way to get better at what I do. I became an author in 2018. It's so I publish, I self publish and I publish with a publishing house. My 11th book, the one I wrote in French, was with a publishing house. So I'm a self published author and I'm a published author. Mm. Like for real, for real. So I'm both. <laughs> and uh, and to, to me, like self publishing is a good tool to get exposure. And don't get me wrong, it doesn't 
if you self-publish, you 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 are an author because the pure definition of an author is someone who has a who has published a piece of written work. That's what an author is. So if you have if you written something but you haven't published it, you're just a writer. You're not an author. But if you publish it, you're an author. So um, so yeah, I started publishing in 2018. And I realized that if I wanted to change the minds of people, it would be good to write instead of doing politics. Before I wanted to be president of Ivory Coast, that was one of the reasons why I even studied political science at first. But then I watched a documentary of Hayek when he said, if you want to change the mind of people, don't get into politics because it will corrupt you. Everyone has always the good ideas, the good intentions once they get into politics. But once you're in, the benefits, the money you make, the power you have. So he says that writings are a more powerful tool to change the mind. And that's true. The Bible and the Quran are the two most powerful books on earth. <laughs> Adam Smith wrote the, 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 the Wealth of Nations. The world always changed through books first. Right. Always. Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. Uh, Karl Marx wrote The Communist Manifesto. Completely changed the world. Hayek wrote those who wrote to serve them. Keynes, the general theory of employment and money. All these, just look how the world has changed through books. Books are a very powerful tool to change the mind of people. It just, it's just that it takes time. Mm. It takes time for its effects. But if you're, if you really want to change lives, you want to promote something, I personally believe that I would encourage you to write. Write, and, and thank God now we have Amazon, so you can self-publish your work. You self-publish your work and you promote it. That's it. I, I mean, of course, some people will agree with you, some will not. Fine, who cares? But so long as you get the exposure, you start building your notoriety. It takes time, but people start to get to know who you are and what you have to offer, and they even start to respect you for the work you do. So if you're a man of ideas, writing is probably the best tool to use to promote what you believe can advance, you know, human nature and human freedom or knowledge and stuff. Well, I need to start writing then. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, you should. Like, if, if you really, if writing is something you enjoy doing, you should. Seriously. I... I never thought I would become an author. Like, I knew that I wanted to be a politician before. I knew that I had to write a book or two because, you know, in politics, once you run for office, you have to publish a book. Like, it's kind of like a conventional thing. You know, it's like you want to get into politics, you have to go to law school. You know, it's a routine. So, but I never thought of making it my career. And I saw that being a thinker, it's interesting. I think it's 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 much better than being a politician, in fact. As always say, I'd rather be the mathematician who creates a formula than the one who enforces the formula. Mm. Because if the formula fails, they're going to hold you responsible, you the enforcer, not the who the one who creates a formula. Yeah. When you look at yeah, when you look at communism, people blame more Lenin than Marx. Right. Marx created a formula of communism, but Lenin is the one who implemented the, the, the dictatorship. <laughs> so it's the same thing it's a very good point yeah 
Um, so we so we actually touched on Africa a little bit earlier, um, but now to get into your book, Classical Liberalism in Africa, um, a manifesto, mm-hmm. do you want to, we, we talked about the political systems and the African governments a little bit, and we talked about the rule of law, but if, if you want to get more into the actual, like, um, putting it into practice in Africa, do you want to talk about the economic freedom chapters and the civil liberty chapters? Yeah, sure. So, um, economic freedom, it's pretty, it's relatively simple. It's everywhere. You need to liberalize the economy. Let deregulate uh, what needs to be deregulated, make property rights accessible to the general public, make credit accessible to people so that they can own property uh, and capital. So, basically, Economic freedom is the way, is the tool to improve the living standard of people. It's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's common sense. If the freer people are to invest, to, uh, to create growth, the better the living standard will take place. I mean, I always tell people this, like, you know, sometimes people... Africans see white people as like if they were gods or if they were myths. I say no, like white people are human beings like us. Like the stage we are right now, white people were in the same stage in the 18th century. Before the wealth of nations, Europe was a uh, was an agricultural society. And look, since the wealth of nations, how in 270 something years, look how the world has changed. Technological progress. Look how we move from an, an uh, from a agricultural society to an industrial society, where people who had the freedom to undertake to 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 create uh, you know enterprise to employ labor because every single person that you employ you employ you lift him out of poverty. Clearly, if you earn a salary, you're no longer poor. I mean, you're not rich because you may have a. Uh, you may have a, uh, a lifestyle that you would like to have and you live maybe under that lifestyle. So you may consider yourself poor, but poverty is simply the, abs- the absence of income. That's all poverty is. People make poverty sound as if it was something mysterious. It's simply the absence of income. Income. It's poverty. It's like, uh, let me make this analogy. Like, assimil- I try, try to see poverty as day and night. The day is the absence of darkness the night is simply the absence of light that's all poverty is the absence of income period once you start having an income you're no longer poor you're working your way up to become richer and richer you know to to but you you're you are you have been already lifted out of poverty because the proof every single country has its level of poverty the man who is considered to be poor in the united states if that same man you take Let's say the poorest man in the United States worth a hundred dollars. That's all he has in his bank account. Take that guy, send him to I don't know, uh, Liberia. He'll be among the richest person in Liberia. Poverty is related. It's 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 not a, an objective thing. Like it's based on the riches of the country where you live in. Yes, in the United States. Yeah, it's. Yeah, you're gonna be more poor because it's a rich country and it, it's tough. But the poor man here in the United States is richer in a third world country. 
it's a, it's it's all a matter of perspective. So when politicians come and talk about we're going to eradicate poverty, give me a break. You're not going to eradicate everything. It's it's nonsense. The politicians they always come and make those big promises because they know we cannot achieve it. Politicians will never make you promises that we can achieve because if they do, they become irrelevant. Politicians will never come and tell you. If you want to, to escape poverty, go to school, get your GED or your high school degree. Make sure you do not have a criminal case. Make sure you do not impregnate your girlfriend before you get married because child support, you're going to have to pay for it. Then you have nothing for yourself to save. Or take every job that comes your way to develop you know, a uh, professional discipline in the workplace. If they tell you all this stuff, you're going to be like, hey, I can do that. I don't need you. So they come and they tell you, we're going to eradicate unemployment. We're going to eradicate poverty. Vote for me and I will. No, you won't do anything. Mm. You won't do anything. Okay, Bill Clinton is a perfect example. Bill Clinton was born, even actually Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was a perfect example. Nixon and Clinton, they were both born in poor families. All they did was to go to school. They make rational choices. They could have done drugs. They didn't. They just went to school, they got the, the BA law degree, and they became a president. Right. Simple as that. Bill Clinton, from the he graduated from, from Yale, is no longer poor. He became an assistant professor of law at Arkansas University School of Law. He was no longer poor. Done. Right. <laughs> he was lifted out of poverty. Nixon, same thing. <laughs> so you see how easy it is. Like It's just like, do the right thing, and you'll be fine. Mm. It's it's people make some make poverty sound like oh my god, oh my god, poverty. <laughs> he's so poor. We're all poor until we start working. Mm. The poorest man on earth is always the child because you don't produce any income. You live with your parents, right. <laughs> and you know, like yeah. So people just things are things are like. Could be rationally solved but people love and rely on politics so much and they make it seem like the political process will save their life the political the political process is simply enhancing rent seeking it's nonsense mm. you know what rent seeking is if you never heard of it rent rent seeking is basically uh using the political process to enhance your personal wealth without creating you new wealth so let me give you an example, Mitch McConnell, one of the richest men in the United States legislature. He's the senator of one of the, he's the fifth senator of one of the fifth poorest states in the U.S., Kentucky. Kentucky is one of the poorest states in the U.S. Mitch McConnell worth $22 million. <laughs> Where did he get that money? Did he work? I mean, seriously, did he work $22 million before he came to Congress? No. Exactly. Exactly. That's rent seeking. It's when you create. It's when you, you, you. Um, it's it's when you enhance your personal wealth without creating you new wealth. Mm. That's what rent seeking is. Yeah. You you should read. Um, you should look into um. Public choice, public choice theory. Very interesting. I read this book. Hold on. Let let, let me show you this. The calculus of consent. By 
James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock. Best analytical book I've ever seen. Those guys wrote, it's a book of politics, but it's written from a scientific point of view. It's very cool. They basically, they call it politics without romance. Awesome. So, it, yeah, it's not about, we're going to expand social security. <laughs> we're going to expand Medicare, Medicaid. Nah, here they tell you cool how what politics is about. It's very interesting. James Buchanan actually won the Nobel Prize for that book. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He, I... Yeah. He wrote um, The Calculus of Consent. Basically, he developed a robust way of demonstrating government failures. Mm. Okay. Yeah, from a very analytical standpoint, like he even used mathematical models to demonstrate how people vote. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And you. Yeah. And you said that was from the public choice school of economics. Yeah, public choice theory. Okay. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a branch. Basically, it's interesting. What what is interesting about public choice is that it's an economic tool. To that is used in political science, especially when it comes to elections. People use public choice theory to determine how votes will go. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I had a I had a public choice economist on, I think three episodes ago. Uh, have you heard of Alex Tabarrok? No. Yeah. So he's from uh, he's from George Mason, and he was talking about the coronavirus and stuff like that. But um, you you were mentioning Nobel Peace Prize and stuff like that, and we were talking before the interview. I don't know if you want to maybe say what you're going to work no, on no no we, we can definitely talk about it no yeah. problem so um i mean as you follow me on on instagram you know i post a lot about the nobel prize mm -hmm. like or the reason why is because to me it's 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 a good incentive to promote science to promote knowledge and human advancement that's why i like the nobel prize and you know, African, like black people in general, they're very inclined into entertainment, dance, music, uh, uh, movies, you know, basically anything that doesn't demand intellectual or analytical skills. Like, for instance, you have 70% of the players in the NFL are blacks. Yet there is no black person who owns a NFL club. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like mm. they, they, black people are too. They are very into um, entertainment, but it's not entertainment that develops a society. Look at the Chinese, for instance. When I was younger, when we talk about Chinese, we as we think immediately of what Bruce Lee, Kung Fu you know, karate movies. That's how we used to see them. But today, when you, you, we say Asian American or Chinese, immediately the first thing that comes in your mind is computer scientist, physicist, mathematician. What happened? They shift from the emotional standpoint, so from emotional activities, so anything that is entertainment, to rational activities, anything that demands analytical skills. So my friend and I, we believe that Africans have talent, but they don't use it. Africa is seen as the garbage of the world because Africans are not respected. Because for, 
for Asians and Europeans, Africans are just guinea pigs. If you want to get entertained, go to an African person. But they never consider Africans to have done a significant contribution to the advancement of knowledge and, and humanity. So we want to do, so what my friend and I want to do is to create, is to write a book that will encourage African leaders to establish similar to the Nobel Prize in Africa to encourage people, to encourage science. Because most African countries have a literacy rate of less than 50%. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. A country where most of the population does not know how to read, write, or count, that's bad. So if you're able to, to implement something like the Nobel Prize to, to incentivize people, you will see how people will all of a sudden want to go to school. <laughs> <laughs> trust me, trust me, they wanna to go to school. They will wanna work. When we say, Oh yeah, like we implement a, 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 um, a Nobel Prize in, in in Africa, we're going to reward the best uh, African scientists. If, and then we give let's say we give five hundred thousand dollars to the winners. Oh, okay. I think I'm done playing around. I'm gonna to go to school and maybe win that. It gives <laughs> that incentive. And I, it's, I, and my friend and I, what we wanted to, what we want to demonstrate is that it's a, it could be a factor of economic growth. Because what develops a nation is not the human resources you have, it's the human capital you have. If your human capital is not educated, if your human capital does not have the education necessary to apply the knowledge into the product for alternative use, that product is useless. Mm. That's why nat natural resources are not resources until they're, used, they're, they're transformed for alternative use. That's all. That's all in what a natural resource is meant for. Mm. For instance, wood, wood has, has no value until you, you use it to build a table or something. That, 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 that's what it's about. So, yeah, my, my friend and I, we want to... And I honestly hope one day that I can win myself the Nobel Prize mm. in, in economics. Well, I hope one day. That's my aspiration. Yeah, well, I'm sure there that is we're... There is no win. I'm sure that we're what definitely going to hear your, your name a lot more as you continue to write more books and everything. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, I hope so. Like, it's, it's, it's tough, like, especially... In the Nobel Prize, it doesn't say what it takes to win, mm -hmm. in, but there are patterns that have been that have been established, such such as, for instance, being published by uh, scientific journals, so like academic journals, or being cited a lot. So these, it's not a requirement, but it's a pattern. Like it's not written anywhere that that's what you have to do, but. That's technically what you have to do, right? If you know you want to get your name out there, but there are other ways. It's not if I've I've submit I've been submitting some of my articles. There is a theory. There's an economic theory I've been developing lately for the past couple of months. It's called the public choice growth model. So I base my theory on the solo growth model, and I add two other variables of the political elements of economic theory, which are. Inflate, which are inflation and government borrowing. So the, the so the point of that theory is to demonstrate that economic output increase faster when things are deregulated. 
mm. compared to when it because when things are deregulated, the, the, the government borrows less because people can do whatever they want because government borrows in order to subsidize. And yeah, because okay. government doesn't have money, it has to either borrow, borrow from the central bank or through taxation. Mm. So if the government doesn't want to tax, it's going to borrow money and it borrows to subsidize, but subsidize, but subsidization negates competition. So my, th my, my theory is to demonstrate that in a market that is deregulated or in an economy that is deregulated, economic output grows faster because if the government sub uh, borrows less, it's, it's going to decrease inflation because the quantity of money, so because inflation depends on prices also, but also on the quantity of money supply. The more money you produce, the more inflation you increase. So if the government doesn't borrow money from the central bank, the central bank doesn't have to print any more money. Mm. It doesn't mean that the government doesn't have a role to play my model. It does, but but its role, it's limited. Okay. That's the point. Yeah, well, so there is still free market ideology behind it. Right, well that model seems very necessary because I mean, I find, I find myself needing to point to something when I talk about regulation, you know, there's, I, I yeah. can think of these anecdotal points where like my family's been affected by certain regulations through the DOT or certain yeah. things like that. But if you could actually point, like we were talking about earlier, to a mathematical model that, you know, proves Exactly. That. And I've developed a mathematical model. I, I actually, actually submit that article to, I submitted first of all to the Journal of Development Economics, but it got rejected. And I expected that it's really not easy to publish with a, mm. um, with a with a scholarly journal it's it's tough it's difficult very difficult so i submitted to the review to another journal it's called the review of development economics so hopefully this one will will go through if it doesn't publish my articles on academy.edu you should definitely follow me there like i have all my scientific papers there i use it as a tool to get exposure Okay. At this point, the good thing is that thank God we live in the 21st century. We live in a century where in internet gives you exposure. Right. Today, people are celebrities without going on the news. Instagram gives you the exposure you need. Facebook gives you the exposure you need. So that's what I'm doing. Like I'm using academia as a tool. It's basically it's really interesting. So it's a uh, it's a platform where people can upload their papers and share it with the world. Hmm. So it gives you exposure. Like anyone from anywhere can see what you have published. I personally believe in good accidents, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, I you do. know, someone important one day comes and says, hey, who wrote this? I mean, it could happen. Right. It's something you don't control. It's something you cannot develop a mathematical model to demonstrate that it will happen. <laughs> it, it happens once in a while. Wow! All you have to do is to hope. Right. You produce work and you hope for the best. So, um, so that's what I've been using so far. Academia.edu. So I'm using that. So if those journals reject my paper, I'm just going to publish on Academia and then I'm going to turn that into a book. In fact, mm. that thing, yeah, I'm going to definitely turn that into a book for sure. That's a good like, idea. I'm going to publish that that uh, that paper. So that paper is called the theoretical foundations of the. Uh, public choice growth model. Okay. And what I want to do eventually 
my next book, there, there's one book that I will start working on after the one of the Nobel Prize. That is called a mathematical theory of economic growth. Mm. Now, that it's my model that I'm going to develop further. The okay. first paper that I told you about, this is simply the theoretical foundations. It's just to understand the basic concept of my theory. But then the book I'm going to work on, that is I'm going to get in, into detail. So it's going to be heavily mathematical. Okay. And <laughs> is, that, is that what you've been posting on your, um, your Instagram story? Oh, no, no. The one I've been posting on my Instagram story, that, that is the book I'm currently working on. This book is called The Economic Development of West Africa in the 21st Century. Okay. A theoretical and empirical analysis from a neoclassical perspective. Okay. It's a long title. Hold <laughs> on. Let, let me actually uh, write you the title down so you have it. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. That's the the book I'm currently working on. Because what I want to do is to work for my continent mm. to promote. Yeah. My guy. I found my path in economics. I'm into development economics. So anything that deals with structural changes, economic growth, and stuff like that. Do you do you plan on going back home eventually, or are you planning on staying um, in the states? No, nah, nah, I'm staying here. Okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm just going to. I'm going to stay here and write my books. I love that. I, I love that job, man. Yeah. Twenty first century. All right. Well, if you want to just tell everyone where they can find you and yeah, sure. So um, everyone can find me on Instagram. I start working on my website, but honestly, I've been lazy. Like I, I just rather be on Instagram, and you know, it's easier. Everyone can find me there. My profile is on public, Germinal G Van. So for people who wonder what the G stands for, it means Gerard. <laughs> yeah. So Germinal Gerard Van. And uh, yeah, on Instagram, people can find my books on Amazon, eBay, all the online retails, basically. And uh, yeah, pretty much. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on today. It was great oh, talking no to you. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Yep. I'll talk to you yeah. later. Yeah, definitely. It was awesome. Thanks for the opportunity.